Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about the sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. That was good, huh? Two of you liked it. Good. Well, good evening. My name is Jay, and uh, so glad you're here with us this evening. And we are continuing a series in gratitude. And how do we continue to stay grateful? Um, I hope you enjoyed Thanksgiving. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? How many of you were with family? Were you with family? Okay. Some of you? Great. A lot of you weren't. How many of you did like a Friendsgiving thing? Okay, great. And I'm not going to ask how many of you ate pizza. I just don't want to know. Uh, but, but, uh, and I would like to suggest something, uh, by way of Thanksgiving. Um, it's a little controversial. So I want to start with, I want to start with telling, uh, just, I'm just going to see who's with me. The turkey is not very good. I, I just want to say it. I think it's important to be said. Okay. If it was so good, we would eat it all year. Right. Wouldn't we? So I'm suggesting that we move on. Um, we just move on. And we make the new Thanksgiving tradition is brisket. There's some real, mm, there's something that happened there. Some of you are like, oh, yeah. See, wouldn't that be good? You'd actually look forward to that. Okay, moving on. But I, I really hope, I hope you did enjoy Thanksgiving. Hopefully you did get a chance to be with family and enjoyed, enjoyed some, just some time off and hanging out. Uh, we've been doing this series on gratitude because uh, we just fundamentally believe in the life of our church. And as we read through the scriptures, that um, being grateful people is an essential component to uh, really opening up our lives to God and to one another. And so we started uh, this series by talking about how grateful we are for the life that God gives us in Jesus. Uh, we did baptisms. And uh, we talked about that. We talked about how, how when we open our lives up uh, to God in, in Christ, we are establishing a new life with God that we can be grateful then no matter what. No matter what happens in life, we have a bedrock, bed, bedrock, a bedrock where we can say that we're grateful for, for the life that we have in Jesus. And that can never be taken from us. And so no matter what goes wrong, no matter what pain hits our life, we can be grateful for the goodness of God and the life that we have in Jesus. Last, uh, last week, we talked about uh, some different ways that we were grateful. Um, uh, in, in our other churches, where I was, we, we showed a little video of Dave Ramsey. Has anybody ever seen Dave Ramsey? Do you know who Dave Ramsey is? How many of you know who Dave Ramsey is? Yeah. Um, and Dave Ramsey is uh, a fairly controversial person because he yells when he preaches uh, at people. So that's awkward. Uh, but... But he, he gave a message, and I heard some of what Preston uh, did last week, and just really challenge, and, and if you didn't get a chance, we, we have it on our podcast, but really challenge us to think about how do we generous with our, our money, because if you're a truly grateful person, you're a generous person. And sometimes we wonder, am I really grateful? And here's a way that you can figure out uh, if you're grateful, is how generous are you? Like, how easily do you give money to people in need? How easy is it for money to go through you, not just come to you? And in the richest nation 
in the wealthiest nation in all of human history, uh, if we can't figure out how to give away out of what we've been given, then that's, that's a problem. And that's actually what I want to explore a little bit more uh, tonight, specifically in relationship not just to how we kind of see our life with God or how we see what God has given us, but how do we see the way that we connect with other people? Are we truly grateful for the relationships that we have and the connections that we have with other people? And this is no small thing because you may or may not have noticed this, but there is nothing in our current culture that will help you be grateful. Literally nothing. Actually, it's worse than that. There are hundreds of millions of dollars dedicated to making you dissatisfied with your life. Did you know that? Like right now, your demographic, whatever your demographic is, you know, your age, how much money you make, single, married, whatever, there is hundreds of millions of dollars dedicated to aiming at your demographic to making you feel miserable about what you have. Is that not true? You're on a marker board somewhere. You're on a spreadsheet somewhere. And there's people aligning their efforts to make you feel dissatisfied so you will surround yourself with more of the crap they want to sell you. Now, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to become really, really old in your eyes this second. Because I can remember getting a cell phone and feeling like some kind of voodoo magic appeared from the sky. I remember I rem- it was a flip phone, which was cooler at one point than just the candy bar style phones. I know, I, I know it's hard to imagine that flip phones were cool. They were cool. And I had a cool flip phone and I can remember being absolutely amazed that I could send messages through the ether to other people. Like they just went through the air and appeared into their phones. And there was a thing, many of you have never heard of this. You're just going to have to believe me. It's like ancient wisdom. There was a thing called a T9 function you would text with. (laughs) Where the, the letters were on the numbers and you would just type with faith that that the phone would correctly guess the word that you were typing based on, you know, and, and it was right about 15% of the time. And then the rest of the time, you'd have to go back in and edit it back to what you were trying to say. And listen, I, this is like really hard to believe, but I remember just thinking, this is incredible. I can send messages to people. They just instantly appear. Sure, half the time it's nonsensical because T9 is terrible, but we're close, right? And then, and then out comes like smartphones. And well, then it's like you have a flip phone. I mean, with T, I mean, like what is wrong with you? So of course you have to get the smartphone. And I don't know if you've had the horrible experience of being someone with one of the new iPhones. Has anyone been with a person who has one of these or you have one here? I, I don't recommend it because you're going to want it instantly. They literally pick up their phone and just notices their face. Did you know that that's what the new phone does? It'll notice your face and just unlock. Waha. I mean, it's like magic. Now, each of these advancements 
is, is followed with hundreds of millions of dollars of campaigns for new cars, new phones. Their entire job is to convince you that what you have is not sufficient. It's the whole job is to even sort of make you feel maybe even slightly embarrassed that you still possess what you possess. Um, does it, it, you know, like, here's, here's an interesting question. How many of you have a car with a cassette tape deck in it? Like it can play a cassette. Do you? It's just you and me. There's a few of you, right? Have you ever had someone in your car with you recently? I had someone in my car and they looked at it and went, Oh, Jay, Jay. I mean, come on, man. Like, really? Like, what is this? What is this? I mean, it, and I, I'm not even kidding. It was like genuine, like, oh, like, like it, 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 they weren't even making fun of me. They felt sad. Like, Jay, what has happened to you? Right? And, and, and that's the speed of improvement. And all kinds of things are happening in our culture that make, make it so that you are completely dissatisfied with whatever you have. So you can be convinced that you have to get something else. That goes for televisions, that goes for cars, that goes for homes, that goes for literally everything you possess. And you are crazy if you think it stays in that genre. See, this is an American cultural phenomenon. It bleeds into every part of your life. Um, you begin to believe that you're entitled to be comfortable and settled. And this goes into every area, including, well, like your relationships. You come to believe that like every relationship I have should be idealized into some kind of magical experience where this person meets every one of my needs, uh, maybe without me even describing them. They just intuit them because I'm worth it. And we live with a consistent sense of dissatisfaction. Now, pastorally, for me, I meet with people all the time. People are radically dissatisfied in their friendships. You know, like I don't have the friends I really have. To. They're radically dissatisfied if they're married in their marriages. Most parents are totally confused about how to be a parent. And for sure, most people are dissatisfied with their parents. Convinced that, of course, they should know how to do something better than how they know how to do. And of course, it's never us. It's always them. I've even heard from time to time, and this is just a rumor, I'm not really sure, I'm sure it wouldn't even fit here, but I've heard from time to time people have a hard time connecting in church. And they're convinced that churches don't really know how to connect to them, of course, because you know it's incumbent upon whatever this thing is to help connect them. And so they just go on the never-ending carousel of finding the church that just ever so perfectly fits their Goldilocks needs not too hot, not too cold, just right. And of course, that's just what's out and about everywhere else. I mean, I'm, I mean, not, not here. I mean, somewhere else, right? Another, another church, you probably, somebody you might know, right? And, and, and that, and this never ends, this dissatisfaction, this intensity. And it's not just happening around us. It's not just happening to us. 
we would be crazy if we didn't notice that it starts to change something from within us. To be an American right now, by default, means that you strive to take hold of whatever the next thing is. It's wired into our culture. Um, I'll confess uh, my sin to you. If you'll hear it, will you hear my confession? Hear my confession? Okay. How, how many of you are personality geeks? Any personality geeks here? You like study, like, you know, you know, like the Myers-Briggs. You're pointing at him. Okay. So he's a personality, personality geek. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever, any of you ever uh, done the Enneagram test? Do you know the Enneagram? You guys know that? You know your number? And you know, what for the, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, don't worry. This is just for the geeks. I'll, I'll explain it. I'm an Enneagram three. That's my type. And a three, don't start laughing. Don't start laughing. She's immediately like, that's sad. Oh my gosh, that poor guy. No, I'm just, I, Enneagram three is the need to achieve. So that means in every area of my life, I'm trying to figure out how to win. What does it mean to win? What does it mean to take hold of the moment and win? Uh, this is um, difficult to be married to. If you're wondering, if you don't pray for my wife, you, you should. Uh, it's a difficult person to be married to because I'm constantly like, but there's more for us, Danielle. There's another thing. There's more for us. And she's like, really? You know, I feel like things are good. You know, it's sunny outside. We should enjoy today. But then what opportunity does that afford us that it's sunny outside, right? It means it's hard uh, to work with me. If you uh, have ever uh, worked with me, if you've, uh, I um, am pretty hard to work with because I'm always seeking to win. I want to win the next thing. Um, I've been known more than once in about every meeting I walk into to say, how do we win today? I ask that question all the time. How do we win today? After we finish a meeting, I will look at people and say, how did we win? Did we win? I ask that every, I mean, I ask that multiple times a day. I've learned to not say it, but I'm always thinking it. And it's the way that sort of my, my life works. So I, and, and by the way, it makes it even more complicated to work for someone like me. Because I'm always wanting, how do we win? Did we win? Are you winning? Why aren't we winning? We must win. And I hope I'm growing through that. That can be a helpful thing. Some of you right now are like, dude, this guy is so messed up. Don't worry. You're just as messed up as me. It's just a different thing. So... So we all have these different idiosyncrasies, but here's what's interesting about culture, about every sociologist studies American culture says that American culture is an Enneagram three culture. Whether you're wired like me or not, you are in the soup of the American world that says it's important that you strive to take hold of the next thing. And there is this insatiable desire and need that is fueled from the outside, from advertising and consumerism and individualism and greed. And it begins to tweak us from the inside and it affects every piece of what we do from how we spend our money to how we manage our time. And fundamentally, how do we examine and understand our relationships? 
And here's what I want you to consider tonight. It's very simple. It's really to the point that your capacity to be grateful for what you have determines the load limits of your connection to God and to people. To the degree that you live grateful is to the degree that you are connected to God and to others. To take what you have, not just what you want, creates the capacity that you can actually have more, not as someone who strives and grasps and demands, but as someone who lives truly grateful that you can be trusted with more. You have the capacity for more. I don't know if you've ever thought about uh, who in the Bible you read them, you read about their life, you think, yeah, that's kind of like me. I can understand how that person works. For me, uh, the person who wrote the letter that we were reading a moment ago, we'll look at here in a second, the Apostle Paul, if he wasn't an Enneagram 3, he was definitely an 8. You know, he was, <laughs> he was one of these super intense, aggressive, make-it-happen-achieve people. That's what Paul was like. Uh, like, for example, there's one place where Paul and his friend Barnabas, who was kind of a lifelong friend in ministry, they'd gone on this big ministry trip, and they, came, they ran into some trouble where they were going to be thrown in prison. A whole bunch of stuff was about to go wrong. And one of their companions, a guy named John Mark, freaked out because he was terrified he was going to be beaten up and possibly killed, and he ran away in the middle of this trip. Well, they didn't die, and they have a kind of regrouping, setting up if they're going to go on a second missionary journey. And John Mark reappears, says, hey, I am so sorry I ran away when we were about to die earlier, but I was pretty freaked out. I ran away. Can I like join you on the next trip? And Barnabas goes, yeah, of course you can join us. John Mark, you're, you're, a, you're a brother. You're a son in the Lord. And Paul goes, oh, time out. John Mark is not coming on this trip. He's not coming. He bailed. Barnabas, you were there. He ran away. When it got hard, he ran away. We cannot trust John Mark. Barnabas goes, hey, Paul, chill out. I know you're a little intense. Just hang in there. He's coming along. Like, I need him to come along. He, he's a brother. He's, he's a son in the Lord. He's coming. Paul goes, listen to me, Barnabas. We've been friends a long time. I'm getting on the boat. John Mark is not getting on the boat. So if you want to be with John Mark, that means you're not getting on the boat. And it turns out, Paul and Barnabas break up a lifetime of ministry to that point over John Mark. Paul leaves his companion in ministry, actually the guy that trained him in ministry, because he has no, Paul does not suffer fools. He has got stuff to do. That's the Apostle Paul. By the way, that's in the Bible. You're like, where did he hear that? That's in the Bible. That wasn't a gossip column or something. That's in the Bible. It tells the whole story right there where Paul's like, I'm out. He's not coming along. That's Paul. That's who we're talking about. And so when Paul's writing letters, you have to realize, like, this is a real person with personality and emotions and intensity, and he's growing through things through his life. And when he writes this letter to Philippi, you have to realize he's bringing all of who he really is. He is this kind of guy. And I wonder, uh, you know, before we look at kind of exactly how this letter works, I wonder if you've ever thought about which of the churches of the New Testament you would want to be in. 
if you were going to attend one of the churches, some of you are like, that would assume I read the Bible. Okay, well, I'm, not, I'm just saying for those of you who have read the scriptures, you've thought about like the different letters. Like, would you maybe want to be in the church of Corinth? Who's here like, yeah, Corinth sounds good for me. Anyone? Hey, Corinth would be tough. And here's why. Um, first of all, Corinth apparently has, is real competitive about leadership. They all like argue about which leaders are the best. Um, some are like, I love Paul. Other people are like, I'm glad Paul's gone. He was a jerk. I love Apollos. Uh, and no, Peter's my guy. Well, Peter abandoned him. It's Paul. And they're all fighting all the time. So, so can you imagine a church where people would argue over leadership? Anyway, so what an ancient weird thought. Because what Paul says is, no, you're supposed to love Jesus. All these men are just servants. We're connected to Jesus. Why are you making it about people when it's about Jesus? So that's one thing weird with Corinth. Here, here's another thing weird with Corinth. Apparently there's all this weird sexual stuff going on. Like there's a leader who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. That's weird. Nobody does anything about it. Paul's like, hey, you guys might want to like have a conversation about that. And then there's people getting drunk at the communion table. So, you know, sweet church. So Corinth is a nightmare. And then you have another extreme. You have like Galatians. So the church uh, of Galatia where that church is like the exact opposite. It's super legalistic. It's really intense. So you have Paul writing them going, you know, they were breaking themselves up ethnically and racially. Like people would have to sit in different places. Can you imagine that somewhere in church history, people would do that? Oh, wait, they did that too. Anyway, but, but the point is, Super legalistic, racist, ethnocentric. And Paul goes, no, what you, what's wrong with you guys? God is breaking down all barriers in the gospel. Uh, they, they were even kind of sexist, you know, men and women. And he's like, no, we're, we're one in Christ. And so again, would you want to be in the church of uh, Galatia? Some of you are like, I was in that. I grew up in that church. Okay, so, so don't, don't go back there. And, uh, or, or maybe Thessalonians, that's my favorite one also, because, you know, Thessalonians, it seems like Paul really likes the Thessalonians, but they have this weird thing where they think the end of the world's coming in any moment. Jesus is going to come back. And so, you know, they buy their land and their guns, not their guns, but, but, you know, you get the point. If we were updated, that's what it would be like. And they're all like waiting for Jesus to come back because, you know, it's their Y2K kind of, kind of people. And Paul has to write and say, hey, um, you should keep your jobs <laughs> like keep working, like be normal humans, connect with the other humans. Don't just hide, demonstrate the life and the love of Jesus where you are. And, he, you know, so each of these letters has these unique things that Paul's addressing within them as he's writing and you can pick them up. Now, Philippians is entirely unique in that sense because, well, Philippians, Paul doesn't seem to address anything directly. Philippians is a unique church in that most commentators look at it and say, man, he loved this church. It was like he was connected to it in a very specific way. And it makes you wonder, why was he connected to this church in this way? What made it so that there was no massive thing that he felt like he needed to correct? What was going on? Well, for those of you, you know, the six of you taking notes, Acts 16 and 17 the writer of Luke describes how the church of Philippi comes into being. The way that it comes into being is Paul is a, trying to push into Asia. He's had incredible amounts of success. He's gone from major city to major city, planting what amounts to big churches. He goes in these synagogues, he preaches, people come to Christ, it starts to grow. 
And then he puts people in leadership and he moves on and he's having success after success after success. And he's about to charge his way into Asia. He's just following major cities. And the scriptures say something strange, say that he was somehow prevented by the Holy Spirit. Um, Another way it says he was prevented by Satan. He wasn't able to go the way that he was going. And then he has a dream. And in the dream, there's a Macedonian man that says, come to us. And Paul interprets this as meaning that these people in this area are waiting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's pretty excited. He thinks, okay, man, we're being called by God. And, and Paul's imagining that this is like evangelism explosion 50 AD. This is going to be revival. You know, this is a big deal to have God specifically tell you, go to this specific place next would have been quite a moment, right? Wouldn't you think? God led you somewhere specific. This is going to be it. And Paul shows up with a few of his friends, pretty pumped about like what's about to happen. And he does, as is his custom, we read about this again in Acts 16 and 17. He looks around the town. And he says, where's the synagogue? Because he was used to going into the synagogue. He would preach the gospel of Jesus until they kicked him out. But usually a few people would start to follow Jesus. Then he would go into the market or into the centers of power, and he would preach Jesus there, lead some of those people to Christ, and then he would build a church and start flowing forward. So he starts looking around and says, where's the synagogue? And the people in Philippi go, we don't, we don't have one of those. I don't even know what you're talking about. Is there no synagogue here? They go, no, no. Are there Jews here? Are there any Jews? There's a few Jews, uh, they hang out down by the river. They do a little ceremony by the river. There's no synagogue because in ancient times, in order to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 men who would pay for a building to make a synagogue. Well, apparently there were not either enough Jews or enough wealthy Jews to build a synagogue. So he goes down by the river thinking, okay, you know, hey, it's okay. You know, I was called by God. Evangelism explosion, 50 AD, let's do this, down by the river. Goes down and just finds a bunch of random people standing around. It's not like a really well put together thing. He preaches the gospel about Jesus and this woman, Lydia, the way Luke records it, says she opens her heart, comes to know Christ. She's a cloth merchant, not a powerful leader, not a religious leader, not an elite, just some woman who kind of owns a business. And Lydia comes to Christ and a few of her co-workers and some of her family meet Jesus. And as Paul's sort of discipling by this river with these people week after week, this demonized girl comes rolling by, starts screaming at him everywhere he goes. He casts a demon out of her. Well, he didn't realize that this girl was somehow like important to a rich person in town. And he used that demonic spirit to make money. So all of a sudden, Paul's thrown in jail. Move to go to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect. You just go straight to jail. So he goes straight to jail. And I'm sure Paul immediately is going, okay, so we led like a random woman to Jesus, few of her friends, some of her family, and now I'm in jail. This is not going well. And a series of things happens, and he leads the jailer and his family to Christ, and it becomes apparent that if Paul stays in that city, they're going to kill him. So he bails out, leaving behind a jailer and a cloth merchant and calling it a church. 
This is Paul, the apostle, who was called to that city and almost nothing happens. His track record to this point would have been really successful and all of the sudden, the thing he thought was going to happen doesn't happen. The letter we read here that we call Philippians is written 12 years later. 12 years after this random group of people assemble, there's something that looks like a church that's been forming. Now, it's the irony is Paul is writing from jail again. I'm sure as the jailer's reading, he's like, man, jail again. But anyway, um, uh, he, he writes from jail again to the, to the church of Philippi. And most commentators would argue that it's likely that this church in Philippi was one of the smaller churches, yet a potent church a church that had replicated a number of different times. Now, when you think about all of that happening, Paul the achiever, Paul the conqueror, Paul the one where everything he does seems to succeed, and he has something that really, really doesn't work after a clear call. You can see how it builds a different kind of affection in Paul for these people. Even the way he writes it, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. I mean, I imagine him just thinking about being by that river, but with these random people going, I can't believe anything happened. But in some ways it was a slap in the face to the courageous, brave, purposeful Paul. You know, he had to kind of reevaluate what his life was about. And Paul found a way to be grateful for the very thing that was probably the most confusing for him. I don't know if you've ever had relationships that didn't go the way you thought they would go. Ever had one of those? Ever had interactions or engagements with people where you thought, this is going to be awesome. And you're like, this is so not awesome. Uh, many of you have come out of Thanksgiving with family. I don't know if you've experienced this before, or maybe you're not aware of it, but family has a way of bringing up the most issues in us for near immediate family. If you're sitting with your immediate family now, just keep a straight face, act like nothing I'm saying is true for you. But it is true. You learn things. And the reason why close family push our buttons is because they installed them. So they, they know where they are and they show up quickly, right? This is just the way of things. This is the way the real world works. And here's the real test of how we're growing in life with God. Do we have the ability to be grateful and practice gratitude in the areas that are the most difficult or complicated? Or do we always just have an insatiable need and desire to make sure that everything goes exactly the way we want them to go in the manner in which we want it to go? And I love the way that Paul describes it. He says, I thank God for you all the time when I'm praying for you. I thank you all the time and I always thank God for you. It's a practice. It's something he intentionally is doing to sow it into his guts. By the way, you see him doing this with lots of different churches, but this church, it's unique. It's like 
It's like there's something about it that he wants to keep saying over and over again. Like, I do this on purpose because I do love you and I choose to be grateful. I am grateful for you from these humble beginnings and this crazy mess. God is doing something. I love the way he even says it. He says, for I'm confident that God will finish this work in you. <laughs> Almost as, though, as, if, as if to say, he started this, so I guess he'll finish it because I have no idea how this is happening. He's not just looking at what is missing, but he's looking at what has been given. Just in case you think I'm pulling a lot out of one place, I mean, think about the words of Jesus where Jesus says that you're to pray for your enemies. If you intentionally try to bless the very people that are trying to hurt you, it makes it hard to hate them. And that's true. If you pray for people that you're tempted to hate, it makes it hard to hate them. Have no fear. You can keep hating them if you want to. I'm just saying what Jesus seems to promise is it makes it more difficult. Something happens within us, not just to the people we're praying. Jesus says, this is a command to you. Pray for those who persecute you. Fight the spirit of the age. It just says, it's all about me and what I need and what I demand and choose to be grateful and bless when it doesn't make sense and when you don't get what you think you deserve. I love the way Paul says it here, and he says it in a number of places, but he says, I always pray with joy. This word joy is very important. He doesn't mean happiness. It's not fleeting pleasure. It means the kind of deep-seated comfort and pleasure you feel like in your bones. Have you ever felt that where you're just like, ah, this feels good. It's right. You and I live in an amazing time where scientists are able to study the brain in real time. We've never been able to do this before. We can watch how synapses form in people's brains, and scientists can notice the places where you feel real joy, not pleasure, not just where you feel kind of a hit of adrenaline, but joy, how those synapses form. And do you know what joy is connected to? How you create a joyful existence? Do you know how that's shaped within you? Some of you are like, I don't know. Is it magic? Do you pray for me? What happens? Well, scientists have shown this, and it, well, it actually underscores what is ancient wisdom. Gratitude. Practices of gratitude build synapses towards joy. I'm going to show you just a really quick video, and we're going to finish from Brene Brown. Anyone ever read Brene Brown? Brene Brown describes from her research how she's seen gratitude connect to joy. And listen to what she says, how it's about practice, not just attitude, practices of gratitude. So let's watch this briefly. Isn't that, isn't that insightful? And I wonder for you in the areas you feel most frustrated, most agitated, most confused, he said, I'm going to choose to be grateful in these relationships and these places. I'm going to choose to seek the places what I can be grateful for and not just what I wish was there, but what is there. And I can be grateful for what I have, not just for what I hope to have. And I promise you, if you begin to practice this, this can change everything. Everything. 
Hey, before we uh, close up, one of the things we love to do is just uh, create this space for questions and answers. So as you uh, have some questions that have come up, you've texted those in or whatever, so we're going to do those really quickly. Answer those, and I'll pray a blessing for us to finish up. If you're still praying, and do whatever you need to do. But. Thanks, Jay. So what is the correct way to move forward and navigate disappointments? Well, there's never-ending disappointments. That's life, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Scriptures seem to teach that the world is broken. So disappointments will always come. Uh, no matter how great things are, there's always something disappointing, isn't, isn't there? And so uh, I think the challenge is, is to keep trusting that God is with you and for you and to keep being grateful for that which you have, not just demanding of that which you don't. And it just seems to me that gratitude demonstrates a capacity for more. When we're not grateful, we're striving, we're demanding. Anybody have a friend that's just demanding more from you all the time? No matter what you, no matter what you give, it's not enough. Anyone have a friend like that? If you don't have a friend like that, you're the friend. Because <laughs> there's a lot of people like that out there. <laughs> Just you might want to think that out for a minute. Um, and in the same way, but people that don't demand from you and just bless you and are grateful, it's amazing how much more apt you are to give, aren't you? It's amazing how gratitude creates capacity. I would just say, learn how to be grateful even in disappointments. Besides verbally, what are some ways that we can be grateful or practice thankfulness? I love Brene Brown's thoughts. I mean, I think gratitude lists are really boring and yet incredibly significant. Um, our, with my family, we say out loud things we're grateful for every night, and then we write them down. Uh, so it was fun for, at the new year, we go back and look at all the things we've written down. So over the course of a year, you have hundreds of things. Uh, my girls are 14 and 11. So you get things like, I like my shoes. Those are in there. But then you have a few things like, I mean, I loved when this person visited or that we got to connect uh, with, you know, one of the things we were, we were kind of reviewing um, was a, a refugee family we've gotten to connect with and to remember that together was really beautiful. So uh, remembrance is always a great key to Thanksgiving and you have to have a record in order to remember, don't you? I forget things. Do you guys forget things? Yeah. So writing is a helpful practice. It's almost like gratitude begets gratitude. Yes. Amen. I would be honored. Uh, would you just want to put your hands out? Just a sign of openness to God. I'll pray a blessing for you. It's a way of showing you want to receive something God has for you. God, I pray for each one of us here tonight. I pray that uh, we would receive from you. I pray for each one of you to remember again the goodness of God. Um, I'm reminded of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil and my cup. It overflows with love, peace, and joy. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So may you find the goodness of the Lord in the places that are most dark and confusing, for he is with you.
May gratitude guide you. So go in the peace and in the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen.